0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. As you know, last Sunday, we had our annual Marian celebration, and I preached about Our Lady's role as the Mediatrix of all graces, that Jesus uses her in this unique way to pour forth his grace upon the earth. It's one of her official titles. It's a doctrine of the church. She is the Mediatrix of all graces. So Jesus is the mediator, She's the Mediatrix. And I explain this by the fact that even though the Bible says, as St. Paul said, actually in our second reading today, that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, that the reason Mary can be the Mediatrix and we can even share in the mediation of Christ is because we share in the body of Christ. If you're a member of the body of Christ and that body is the mediator, then you get to share in that act of mediation. But there is another title in which Our Lady shares in regards to something that belongs to Christ uniquely. Like Christ is the sole redeemer of the world. We know that. You can't go to heaven without Jesus. He's the only savior. Through his sacrifice, he redeems us. But Mary is also given the official title of co-redemptrix. It's one of the other doctrines of the faith that you should learn. And I want to preach about that today. This is why I have the image of Our Lady of Sorrows up beside our Lord. One of your brother parishioners has that at his home, and he let me borrow it. It's a very beautiful image in which we reflect upon Our Lady and the sorrows that she endured in her life, that she endured for the Lord. Now we celebrated this feast day just last Thursday, that's why it's very appropriate that you learn a little bit more about Our Lady of Sorrows and why she is co-redemptrix. Jesus is the redeemer because he suffered for us, according to the will of his father. Mary is the co-redemptrix because she suffered alongside her son for the will of the father. And like our Lord, who suffered perfectly in all things, our lady, because she was full of grace, free from sin, her suffering was perfect in regards to how much a human, a mere human could suffer. Jesus' was infinitely greater. Well, he's God, obviously. But as a mere human, no one in this life has suffered as much as the Blessed Mother. And no one in this life has suffered as much as the Blessed Mother so perfectly, without ever sinning. Most of us, when we suffer, there's some complaint, at least grumbling, a little frustration or disappointment. We don't completely submit to the will of God in that cross. Mary never failed to do this, and she did this most perfectly at the foot of the cross. I remember many, many years ago, I was probably 16 or 17 years old, and I was trying to understand how much Jesus suffered for us. I was trying to, like, experience it. I mean, you know it intellectually, but do you really feel it? Now women, you understand this more intuitively because when a child of yours suffers, you feel it. So when somebody you love is suffering, you can experience that suffering in your own mind and heart. Men, we can't do this like women can. We're just not made that way. So I was asking our Lord, help me understand your passion better. And you know what, what am I missing? What was it like for you to suffer? Why was your passion worse than the other thieves who were crucified alongside him? What makes Jesus' suffering unique in that regard? Other people were crucified in history. Other people were beaten and tortured. And so I'm driving down the road. I was up in Hickory. And about two or three months earlier, one of my older brothers had had the first of my parents' grandchildren. Little girl. And, you know, when you're getting older, it's one thing when you have siblings. But when you, you meet your first niece or nephew, they're just so beautiful little creatures that are totally dependent and innocent, right? You can't help but love them. So I'm driving up the road, and this image comes to my mind after I said this prayer, Lord, show me what it was like for you to suffer. And I saw my new niece nailed to a cross. I almost threw up. I had to pull off from the side of the road. I couldn't even drive. It was so disturbing. And then I heard a voice in my head say, that doesn't even compare to my suffering. So I want you to think about that for a moment. The most innocent, helpless person that you love, imagine them being tortured and crucified, and that does not compare to the suffering of Christ. Now imagine if that innocent one was your child. Imagine what mother would suffer to see her child endure such a passion. Only a mother could truly understand, at least to some degree, what Jesus went through. And so on a natural level, just on a natural level, no one but Mary could understand the suffering, could feel the suffering of her son. She's the only one who could come close just on a natural level. Now, supernaturally, since she's free from sin and full of grace, that suffering, like her son's, is, you could almost say, perfected, heightened, intensified. Mary felt in spirit everything that Jesus endured in body and spirit. This is why the saints call Mary more than martyr. You see, she didn't need to give her body, she didn't need to actually die for Jesus. She died there at the foot of the cross in spirit with her son. In fact, it was more agonizing for her to watch him die in this way than if she had died on the cross in his place, right? You mothers know this. You would rather suffer yourself than see your children suffer. You wouldn't like suffering, but you'd be happier knowing that you protected your kids. Mary would have been happier dying on the cross than standing there by her son. That's why she wasn't allowed to do it. It wouldn't have cost her as much. Now, even if you think that's tremendous, the type of suffering she went through there at the foot of the cross in union with Jesus, there's something more you have to remember. And if I wasn't taught this, I would never have figured it out. Mary was so conformed to the will of God so conformed to the will of God that she did not only endure the agony of her son, but she consented to it. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. She was so in union with the will of God that she consented to the torture and death of her son. What do I mean by this? It is said by the fathers that If Mary had not consented to the immolation and death of Jesus, the father would not have crucified him, or I should say had him crucified. Now, how many of you mothers could have done the same? If God said to you, I I want to uh, torture and kill your son for a very good reason, or your child, would you give permission, consent? Mary was so in union with the will of God, like her son Jesus, she, along with our Lord, consented to this cross. That's why she is co-redemptrix. No one has so perfectly not only suffered alongside Jesus, but united their will with his as much as she has. In fact, we are taught that Mary and Jesus were actually grateful to the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, for crucifying Jesus. Mary was particularly grateful. Do you know why? Because if they didn't do it, she would have. Even though it destroy her, she would have finished the job. And so she was grateful to the Roman soldiers who did it for her. Now, this is a degree of union with God and suffering that Even intellectually, we have a hard time grasping. That's why no saint in history will come close to the degree to which she shared in the passion of her son. Now, all of us are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. As a member of his body, we are to be mediators within and through Jesus and co-redeemers within and through Jesus, not to the degree that our lady is, but along with Christ in certain ways. In fact, when, when a soul is baptized, God expects of that soul a certain degree of crosses suffered throughout their life. He has already preordained the number of things you and I are supposed to suffer in our lives as individuals to share in the passion of Jesus. But we're supposed, we have to do it like Jesus. When I complain, that suffering was not suffered like our Lord. When I reject a suffering... Again, it wasn't suffered the way our Lord wanted. Now that doesn't mean every time you suffer, you should simply just accept it. I mean, we have medical science and medicine and even painkillers for a good reason. But if you can't endure any discomfort, any crosses, any difficulties without running for some fix, are you ever going to learn to suffer like Our Lady, like our Lord? For example, you know I have migraines, right? And I'm on tons of medication for migraines, like <laughs> a lot. But you know, it helps me function. And if I wasn't on this medication, I couldn't stand up here before you. I couldn't celebrate mass. I'd be useless. Now, some days, migraine still comes. And so this is how I try to decide whether I'm going to take a painkiller or not. How busy, how much work do I have to do that day? If it's a really, really bad migraine, and I have to come to Mass and hear confessions and celebrate the sacraments and visit with people and have meetings, I won't be able to do that. So if it hinders my vocation, my calling, then I'll take some painkillers. I'm not going to dope myself up, but I'll take enough to make it bearable. But if it is a mild migraine, I'll try not to take anything and just offer it up. Because I assume this is a cross our Lord is asking me to bear. Part of my requirement as a member of the body of Christ. Now, St. Paul actually talks about this in his letter to the Colossians. In the first chapter, he says something strange, and many, when they read this, don't understand what he's talking about. Paul says, because I am baptized in my flesh, so Paul's talking about himself, in my flesh, I make up for the sufferings lacking in the body of Christ, the church. So, Paul is saying that in his own body, in his own crosses and suffering, he is making up for sufferings lacking in the body of Christ, the church. What does he mean by this? Obviously, did Jesus lack any degree of suffering? No, he suffered perfectly. So, what is lacking in the suffering of the body of Christ? Well, Paul is referring to the mystical body of Christ, the church. Christ suffered perfectly, but each of us, members of that same body, don't suffer perfectly, which means the tally of suffering that is required of each one of us isn't paid. So let's say God required 100 hours of suffering from me, patient suffering, before I die, but I only do 60. I'm 40 hours short, so what happens? I can't go to heaven unless that's paid for. That's one of the reasons for purgatory. You gotta finish off the debt. The requirement that God set for you. But you know that just because you can't pay a debt doesn't mean somebody else can't pay that debt for you. That's what Saint Paul is talking about. He's saying, I've already suffered enough for me. Now I'm suffering for the rest of you who aren't suffering what you should be. Paul is making up for our lack of union with Christ in our daily crosses. That's what the saints do. That's one of the things that sets the saints apart from the rest of us who just kind of scrape into heaven. Those souls that used the merit of the saints, like Paul, to get to heaven, that helped them get to heaven. Now, Christ is the one who got them to heaven. But the saints help they're co-redeemers, like the Blessed Mother. They will receive the praise and adulation of the faithful they helped to bring to glory. That's what sets apart certain saints in heaven from other saints in heaven. There's a a degree. There's lesser and greater saints in heaven. You're all in heaven. You're all perfectly happy. Every other saint in heaven will owe gratitude to the Blessed Mother because she has suffered for all of us. But each of us has individual saints from whom we seek patronage and aid. Sometimes we know who they are. Sometimes we don't. It will be revealed to us in heaven, and we will be able to give them gratitude along with God for the rest of eternity for the help that they gave us. So clearly their glory in heaven is greater because of their greater union with Christ in his suffering and death out of love for others. This is what our Lord means in our Responsorial Psalm today when he talks about lifting up the poor. Jesus says he lifts up the poor. In fact, he raises them from the dust And he seats them with princes, with royalty. He's talking about heaven. Dust is the earth, the dust of the earth, dirt from which we are made. He takes them from earth, from the dust of the earth, the poor. Not everybody, not the rich, the poor. And he lifts them up with princes. He's talking about heaven there. So who are the poor? There's two ways to understand this teaching. There's the physical poor, those who don't have money or possessions or food or housing, things like that. And they obviously suffer more than those who have money. So our Lord is referring to those who physically do not have a lot because they suffer more. And because of their suffering, the Lord will lift them up. They will be more blessed by God than the wealthy. But there's also the spiritually poor. And we don't mean like not full of grace, deprived of grace spiritually poor. We mean the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because that's what our Lord is talking about in the Beatitudes. The highest form of poverty in this life is poor of spirit. Poor of spirit refers to the fact that not just physical possessions, but even my own soul, I am poor in this sense. I do not require my will. I'm willing to sacrifice my will, ultimately, in this case, for the will of God. That's why Our Lady is the best. Do you think she wanted to sacrifice her son? Of course not. She would have been crazy if she did. Right? I mean, that's a mental disorder. (laughs) She didn't want to sacrifice her son. But she was willing to do it because it was the will of the Father, which means she was poor in her own will. She sacrificed, she gave up her own will for the will of the Father. There is no greater act of love she could have made. She died to herself, her own desires, her own thoughts. She was totally submissive to God in all things, regardless of what it cost her. That's why she is the poorest of the poor in regards to poverty of spirit, which is why she was elevated in heaven above everyone else. She is the queen of heaven and earth. She earned it. Yes, she was full of grace and she couldn't have done it without God, but no one has so emptied themselves and become poor of spirit as much as she. That's the model for us, that's the model for our Christian life, and that's what Jesus is talking about in the gospel today. Again, this parable can seem a little confusing. There's a steward who's in trouble with the master because he's been misusing his authority as the steward. So the master's about to fire him, but he he wants an account of all of his doings. Now this is an older guy, and he says to us, I'm too old to dig, I can't be a common laborer, I'm too proud to beg, (laughs) What am I going to do when I get kicked out and I don't have a job anymore? He has an idea. I know what I'll do. I'll call in those who are in debt to my master, and I will decrease their debt. Now, you'd think that he's stealing from the master. If somebody owed the master 100 bushels of wheat, and he says, no, no, make it 50, well, wait a minute. If you owed the master 100 bushels, He's basically stealing from the master just to get in good, basically, with the debtor. We know that's not the case because in the parable, Jesus says that the master commended the dishonest steward for acting prudently. Obviously, the master would not have commended him for acting prudently if he's stealing more from him. What was he doing? What was the steward doing? So it's common practice when you lend something to someone, you know, we see this in society, to exact usury, which is condemned by God. Interesting enough, that's a whole nother homily. However, usury is when if I give you $100 and you're going to pay me back, you have to pay me back more. I want $150 back. It's the cost of borrowing my money now. That's always been done. It's, it's an ancient practice. It's how I make more, even though I already have more than you. God condemns it. He's not pleased by it. In fact, our economy is based upon this concept, which God condemns, so that's, again, a whole other homily. But the master wasn't doing this. It was the steward who was exacting usury from those borrowing from his master, but he was pocketing the difference. So his master always got what he deserved, the 50 bushels of wheat, but the steward got 50 also. And he'd sell that and have some extra money on the side. So the steward wasn't removing what was owed to the master, but what he had exacted from the borrowers, what was going to line his pockets. Now, why is this prudent? He's about to be thrown out. Don't you think that he would want these things so he'd have at least some money, something to sell? But remember, this steward is prudent. He realizes, if I take those 50 bushels of wheat or those 20 barrels of wine, that's not gonna last me very long. But the appreciation from these borrowers is greater. They'll take me into their homes because I I did right by them. They will take care of me far more than some money right now. You see, the steward was thinking long-term Yes, my immediate needs would be met if I can get this stuff before I'm fired. But what happens in 10 years or 20 years when it's gone? Our Lord says that that is a prudent way of thinking. You want to think long term. We struggle with this. We struggle to think long term. Most of us are more immediate pleasures, goods. That's why when we're suffering, we just want to pop the pain pills and make it go away. We're thinking, this is bothersome. I don't like it. You know, I'd rather feel better. We don't recognize the benefit of suffering along with Christ because the benefit is far away. It's in the distant future. It's not immediate. But later on in the gospel, Jesus says something else. Again, that can be confusing if you don't understand his language. He says that people who are trustworthy with small matters are also trustworthy with great ones, that makes sense, and people who are dishonest in small matters are also dishonest in great ones. Again, that's not surprising to us. And then he says, if therefore you are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? What is dishonest wealth for our Lord? He says, if you're not trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you what is yours? And he goes on to say that you can't serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Our Lord considers dishonest wealth any type of wealth gotten because of a love of money. That's what mammon means, basically, a love of money. Our Lord is telling us you can't love money and God. They're mutually exclusive. You can have money, and you can use money, but you can't love it. Money is a means to an end. That's all it is. It's not an end in itself. So if you love money, you are not loving God. But what does it mean to make friends with lovers of money, with those who have dishonest wealth. Well, if I love money, and you and I are, have some type of a relationship, what do I love? I love money. So if you want to be my friend, what would make me friends with you the most? Right? Give me what I love. Give me money. Our Lord has seen, make friends with dishonest wealth, meaning give your money to those who love it. Don't worry about it yourself. I'm not saying you know empty your bank accounts and give it away. He's saying basically don't argue, don't fight. Be willing to sacrifice all your earthly goods, possessions, to those who want them, to those who demand them. Remember he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? No, turn the other cheek. Go an extra mile. Give them your shirt as well. Make friends with those who love the things of this world by, look, I'm not gonna fight you over it, If this is going to keep peace, you can have it. Be willing to sacrifice to suffer the loss of something that belongs to you for the sake of a higher goal. That's what Jesus did. He suffered the loss of his own body for the sake of a higher goal. Not his own glory, but so that we could come to heaven. That's what he wants. That's what he values. We struggle to think in a Catholic way from the standpoint of eternity. Most prudent humans can think maybe 10, 20 years out if they're mature, maybe 30. Retirement, you need to make sure you have you know, money in the bank and, and stuff like that. OK, fine. That's good. But that's wrong for us Christians because if we're only concerned with this life until death, then we're missing the rest of our lives. Because all humans are immortal. All of us will live forever. And so if I'm trying to consider my long-term goals, it should always be from the standpoint of 100,000 years from now, where do I want to be? And what do I want to be like? Do I want to be raised up with princes? Do I want to be royalty in heaven or just one of the common peasant saints? that needed royalty to get there. I mean, we know how to earn rewards in heaven. It's by being co-redeemers within and through Christ ourselves. Now that's impossible without grace, and it's highly improbable without the Blessed Mother. She shows us the perfect example. But each day we have to consider and ask that question, am I carrying my crosses patiently am i uniting my suffering with the suffering christ am i making up as saint paul said for those sufferings lacking in the body that is the greatest good that we as christians can do in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit